Hey, welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. Uh, I'm Tim Miller. I got Joan Walsh with us today. Joan Walsh is uh, at The Nation magazine. Uh, she's the author of a new book, Corporate Bullshit, uh, which we get into. This is a little bit more political than the fair I usually prefer for our Sunday show, but it's really worth it because I've just been blown away by my unexpected internet bromance. I, can it be a bromance with a man and a woman? I don't know, whatever you call it. You know, internet affection between me and Joan Walsh of late. Uh, she came to our New York event. And uh, I think that this interview will kind of bring a little bit of a different perspective. I hope you enjoy this. Uh, we've got some good uh, non-politics guests coming down the pike the next few weeks. So, uh, you know, get your little politics fix here. And one more thing. I don't know if you've been noticing. We are posting more and more stuff on YouTube. We've found that discoverability, people finding the bulwark, we're having a lot of success over on YouTube, bringing in new people. We love all you, you OGs. We love you. But it's nice to bring new people into the fold. And so... You know, we want to make sure you're not missing anything. So go ahead and make sure to subscribe to The Bulwark on YouTube if you haven't and check out, you know, the videos that me and Charlie and Bill Crystal and others have been have been putting up there. So up next, Joan Walsh. I think you're going to enjoy it. But first, just a little bit from our buddies at Acid Tongue. Peace. Hello and welcome to the Bulwark's Next Level Sunday interview. I'm here with Joan Walsh, the great Joan Walsh, who's a lot taller than I thought when I met her in person, of The Nation and many other things. She's the author of a book coming out later this month, Corporate Bullshit. Joan, I want to start here. So you're a big wig at the Commie Nation magazine, and here you are on a podcast run by neocon exiles and a former conservative talk radio host in Wisconsin. What, what is a happening? World. I, I don't know, Tim. If you told me this, well, it's been it's going on eight years now that I think we've all kind of been in, in yeah. so you're getting used figurative to it. bed together. So I'm getting used to it, but as you know, I love Charlie, and I, I'm going to do a profile of Charlie if it kills me. I really think that that would be a fun matchup. But yeah. I, mean, I do too. Because you grew I up did. in Wisconsin, I mean, I, that's I right? Or you were in Wisconsin as a teen maybe I or something? I grew up in New York and then we moved to Wisconsin when I was 13. And so I went to high school and college in Wisconsin. Shorewood, nice North Shore suburb of Milwaukee. And then of course, Madison, I am a Badger. And so I've known about Charlie for a while, and I was... Was Charlie contaminating the radio waves while you were a badger? No, no, actually he wasn't. I'm, I'm too old for that. I don't think he was. But I did, <laughs> I did learn of him, you know, pretty quickly. And I, this is going to be a shocking revelation. I was not a fan of Governor Scott Walker. I couldn't vote there. I was gone. But mm. my Madison and Milwaukee friends, I mean, I have a lot of friends who are teachers. So they just didn't like the guy. And, you know, Charlie was a big booster. So, you know, I think of all the people that I've wound up on the same side as now, Charlie is really one of the most remarkable. But I read Charlie every day. You know, I find Charlie really, really valuable. And he's a great writer. So I love that. I'm looking forward to this profile. I've said this maybe on another podcast before, but uh, just for your validation, you know, I before I interviewed the Jeb, I interviewed Scott Walker to be his comms oh. director on his presidential campaign. And he was maybe the stupidest person that I I've ever really spoken to, to in person. That. It was a very embarrassing 45 minutes. I, I didn't know anything. I'm like 29 or whatever right. at the time, I'm maybe 31 or something. And he's interviewing me. And at the, I'm, at the end, I do the thing you're supposed to do, right? Which is kind of like, ask a couple questions. So, you know, the first one was like, well, what role do you think I'd have? And the next question is kind of like, all right, so like, what's the core? Like, don't give me your BS. Like, what's the core message right. 
of why you should be president, like why you'd be a good president, like the old Ted Kennedy question, you know? And he looked at me and he like stammered out a UW lacrosse college Republican boilerplate about small government. And then like you could tell he wasn't confident in the answer. And then I was like, well, but I mean, I, I get the talking points, but like, what about you as a person? And he like stammered again. He looked at me. He's like, wasn't well, that why I'm hiring you to help me with that? No. And I was like, no, you're running for the leader of the free. This was before we had a game show host as right. leader of the free Mark world. But like, we're running now. for a very important job. And I'm like, a, I'm a hack. Like I am a, I, I cannot tell you why you should be president. You tell me. President. And so I go out. Th- that was concerning. So I rejected Scott Walker that time. And that, that felt like a good decision in retrospect. Yeah. Okay. So. I want to do, I want to get get into corporate bullshit towards the end. I have a couple of nitpicks. We're going to maybe go back to our old natural state of not always agreeing about everything. So I want to get to that at the end. But I want to do some McCarthy, Schadenfreude, we just have to, and then talk about a couple other things you've worked on. So we're here this week. Kevin McCarthy has been the first speaker in history to be vacated. Everyone listening knows that, but I just love saying that. First one to have his office vacated. Shortest speakership since the fellow that died of tuberculosis in 1876. And so I just want to do a little bit. I just want to hear your take. You had to have, you know, saw this coming. Like, what is your take coming from more of a lefty perspective about this whole question of, is the next guy going to be worse? You know, what do you First think? First of all, about I have all no idea who the next guy or gal or they or whatever is going to be. So I, I can't tell you that they could be worse. But in a certain way, Tim, they could not be worse because he was such a liar and he had no backbone. And so when did I know that he was going to be deposed on the 15th vote when he finally got the speakership? We both know. We might have you know, tweeted. It. It's going to be over soon. It actually took longer than I really thought. What, nine months? You know, it's, it's really something. When I really, really, really knew and I... I don't mean to sound like a know-it-all because you knew it too, but seriously, sure. when he went on Face the Nation and said, oh, I didn't know it was going to pass because the Democrats were doing everything. They, I'm giving you a draw. He doesn't have one. Bakersfield, whatever that is. The Democrats were doing everything they could to stop it. And even Margaret Brennan, who's the you know very nice person, very deferential, was like, the Democrats passed it. You know, she couldn't believe that he was saying that. Right, right at that moment, I said, wow, this is over. And... They showed that clip at the caucus meeting. I'm sure everybody came to that caucus meeting with their own reasons not to vote for Mike Kevin. But I I just think that cemented everybody. You know there were blue dogs and whatever we call them, border state, frontline candidates who maybe kind of sort of wanted to figure out some moderate compromise. He didn't give them anything to work with. And he insulted them when, you know, some of them were risking some parts of their constituency. You know, the the battle over Ukrainian aid, you know, speaking as someone for the left, I don't speak from the left. I support it. I do support it. But I understand why it's controversial. And there are people on the left of the Democratic caucus and in the center who have some questions. So but they just did it. They just did it, and they kept the government open, and then he spit in their faces on Face the Nation, and it was like it was over. What do you say to the norms crowd, our friend, you know, Joe Scarborough and and these folks that are like, you know, it might not be fair, but the Democrats have to be the adults here, and I guess the most generous version of this question is we might now end up in a situation where the government is shut down in 40 days and where Ukraine doesn't get funds, right? Like, so maybe Democrats should have just held their nose. No, no, no. I mean— I only interviewed Nancy Pelosi two or three times, but it was on the verge of another shutdown. And she said, sometimes I worry that we're enabling 
Republican bad guys and girls by doing what has to be done, by being the grownups. We're the people who care about the people who are going to lose food stamps or, you know, military families who are going to lose whatever. We care. We can't let that happen. So we step in time after time. And I've had my ups and downs with Joe. I, I like and respect him. He's just wrong. And I, I really say to my mainstream media colleagues, I go back to what Nancy Pelosi said to me. Do you ever think that you are enabling this by acting like the Democrats are the only ones with any frickin' I don't know how much we can curse here. We can say fuck on okay. here. Yeah, great. We like that word. The only on the fucking people who do the right thing. And that's just a way of nature. That's just the natural state, Tim. So they just got to do it again and again. That has enabled the worst actors in the Republican Party and even a few that used to be a little bit sane to just do the wrong thing again and again and again. And if I were my friend Joe, I would just be having a little talk with myself in the mirror and being like, why do I keep doing this? And I, I will say that I could say that I, we could name lots of names of people who are doing that. Oh, yeah, sure. I was using it as an example. They're just sort of a lot. Yeah. Matt Lewis. I mean, it's not all even never Trumpers. Andrew Yang was saying yeah, this. Like, cool. this is like a pundit brain worms. Oh, yeah. Thing, right. A lot of pundits were saying. Yeah. This. And even people who are sometimes brave and tell the truth just get into this crouch like, oh, God, you guys, Joe. I mean, basically, the back of his mind is like, even when I was a Republican and, and a bomb thrower, even I counted on the Dems to do the right thing because we were right. crazy. You know, so it's just like, I am so tired of it. I am just so tired. What did you think? Did you hear Kevin relay a, a story about how Nancy said to him in private that the Democrats would? Did you hear this? Yeah. yeah during his press conference, he was like, yes, when I moved the motion to vacate down to one, I had a private conversation with Pelosi where she said that she'd have my back. I find it hard to believe that that conversation happened, but uh, this seems what? like a, one of Donald Trump's sir conversations. But uh, sir, what, what's your feeling he approached on that? me in tears. Nancy Pelosi yeah. approached me in tears and said, sir, I will have your back. Some version of that might have happened. But then she watched him both sell out his own people and sell out Democrats and break his word time and time and time again. You know, obviously, he wasn't in control of what Matt Gates did. No one is, including Matt Gates, But... He does this while she is grieving for Dianne Feinstein. Be cynical if you want. She was my congresswoman for 25, 30 years. Like it or not, they are friends. She, I'm sure she's very sad that Dianne passed, especially in the way that she did. So she's away at a funeral, and you guys are making this move. If she ever said any encouraging words to Mike Kevin, she had the right to take her word back after things he did, and then this week... I'm sorry. She should have left. I think I believe Diane is lying in state at City Hall. Oh, I knew that was going to happen to us. Final thing on this, the Nancy thing, just while we're on it, because we didn't talk about it much on the Wednesday show, is that little dwarf Patrick McHenry, you know, who like jams the jams the gavel down. He's like, I'm mad at you, Democrats. I'm mad. And then I'm going to take away Nancy Pelosi's office. You know, whenever I ask any of my Republican friends in D.C., I'm like, Okay, are there really any normal people left in Congress? I keep hearing there are, but who are they? His name is always one of the ones that comes up. And like, he's this little angry leprechaun taking away Nancy's toys because he lost to Matt Gates. I mean, the whole thing is pathetic. He took away Steny Hoyer's today. He kicked Steny out of whatever little lair Steny has. I mean, I don't care. But but right, cares, she, but it's still pathetic. It's so pathetic. She gave she gave space more space to Denny Hastert, and you know we don't have to go there. Denny Hastert, his poor victims. I mean, again, not to pick on my friend Joe. There are so many people doing this today, but this is what 
we collectively have enabled to some extent, each of us in our different ways. Let's just say that. And and now you see, what are they doing today? What It's so urgent. There's so much happening. And they're taking away Nancy and Steny's little hideaways. I can't wait till Hakeem Jeffries, I don't know, but Patrick McHenry in stock or something. You know, here's your space. You know, just stand here for a few days and... I could make him walk through and through a little dog door or something, you know, like the little door inside the big door. They could make him walk through one of those. Okay. I think so. That's enough of my Kevin. The Bullock listeners have gotten wall to wall my Kevin coverage. It's we so got to take our shot in Freud where we can get it here. I'm sure that they've been enjoying yeah, it. Not. But I want to talk about another Bullock favorite. He actually tweeted one of our articles recently. And so I was hoping that maybe this person might do some learning had he explored some of the other material on the site. And that is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I was so impressed I guess maybe as somebody that has a lot of regrets in life, I feel like I'm now in community with other people who have been like, you know, I missed that one and take responsibility, moved on. You wrote a piece about the vaccine autism link based on RFK Jr.'s claims way back in the day with Salon. 2005. With Salon, I guess, um, which was retracted to, what, 18 years ago now. Now his campaign's back up. He's repeating a lot of these claims. He attacks you salon and so you wrote about this recently so give folks who like kind of missed this the backstrikes you could have just ducked and and pretended like this wasn't happening but you wrote about it and took it head on which i appreciated yeah i mean i had just taken over as editor-in-chief of salon i was the first editor-in-chief after our founder stepped away david talbot great guy good friend very 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 conspiracy theory minded that's not an insult that's a description he would he write season of the witch he did and that's a great book that's so good that's so good. It's, it's about the so history of San Francisco. Oh it's, uh, it's unbelievably good. But, anyway. but then he went on to just a lot of Kennedy conspiracy theories. He believes that both Bobby and Jack were killed by, I don't know, the CIA somehow. Maybe Alan Dulles. Not personally, he never says that. I don't, I don't want to insult anybody. I just want to stick to the truth. Okay. And so I'd just taken over. I kind of inherited this relationship with Rolling Stone and Jan Wenner, who I also wrote about recently. Where they, Jan, somebody who's he, not taking responsibility for his mistakes. Yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, because you know, none of those black artists were really part of his zeitgeist, nor were they articulate. But they okay, articulate. I digress. So, I inherited this partnership with Rolling Stone, which once I took over was not easy because they were all. They also wanted people to believe that. John Kerry won Ohio, and therefore he was the president. And I assigned somebody with Jan's money to look into it, and he the Diebold machines, the, the Diebold exactly, yeah. and he found that that had not occurred, and Jan wasn't happy with me. So then along came the Bobby autism piece, and it, he made the claim that the CDC had falsified and taken down and switched and da da da. This whole study suppressed a study that showed the link between vaccines and particularly the thimerosal. Now I've gone too far. Once you say thimerosal, you've gone too far. Yeah, but anyway, so. this, is, this is interesting. You know, the CDC had basically suppressed this information, this research that it had done and that he, it knew that there was a link between vaccines and autism, childhood, mainly measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines, and suppressed it. And, you know, big pharma was behind it, blah, 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 blah. Our partnership with Rolling Stone included me doing all the heavy lifting of editing, but they were going to do the fact checking. And that that was important. Right. And they, right. you know, they at the time and probably still do have a really robust fact checking department when they assign a real feature. I mean, it's fallen short in a few other cases. But anyway, 
part of what I said that was, you know, really the mea culpa part, I had misgivings and I just didn't really push hard enough. I knew that Jan was on my board. I had just taken over. David Talbot was on my board. I liked my job and I wanted to keep it. And we had great fact checking. So everything was good, except it wasn't. From the minute it went up on the web, we started getting irate and also erudite letters explaining what we got wrong. And it just went on and on and on. And we kept appending corrections and corrections. And then Seth Mnookin wrote a book that dealt with this, and he did the research to show that, I don't know if Bobby did this intentionally or stupidly, he had cut and pasted from a transcript of a CDC-sponsored meeting where they discussed this research, and he had cut and pasted kind of the wor- one of the worst sins of journalism because we've all been tempted. It's like, this is a really good quote if I just chopped off the part where he says, I don't actually... The first three words. Yeah, or, or, yeah the first three yeah. words. And he had done that and he had chopped it up and he had put things in different orders and made it sound like these people were all in on this big pharma cover up. They were not. And when we saw that, it was humiliating, but we took it down. Now, there's still an argument about, you know, whether you should take things down or just leave them up and put, you know, big caution tape or something. We did take it down because it was sort of like so bad you couldn't correct it. And anyway, honestly, what really provoked me was not that I'm a good person, which I'm a wonderful person, but Bobby started saying that Big Pharma got to me. Like, okay, I have a nice little apartment. Big Pharma. No, never. Didn't try. You know? You're not on the Pfizer payroll? Moderna? Moderna's not throwing a little cash in your your way? You know? I can't retire. This podcast is still looking for sponsors if Moderna is out there. Moderna, Pfizer, J&J. Yeah, we're accepting sponsors. We did take it down, guys. I'm totally joking. But I mean, that just pissed me off so royally. This scion, I mean, the poor man suffered major trauma. And I always say that when I'm asked about him. He was crazy, Bobby Jr., but we might be too if we lived through what he lived through. But anyway, he's going around now in real time saying that Big Pharma got to me. And I was just like, no, the truth got to me. Conscience got to me, Bobby. And I'm just not, I'm not here for that. So, you know, I guess in some ways I was defending my own honor, not really necessarily doing a mea culpa. But as you know, it was a mea culpa. I mean, you you know, you did it. Your book was great. And it's just like, you got to do it sometimes. It's like, here are the reasons yeah, that I... And it's just, I mean, it's not, it's not an apples to apples comparison, but the similarities is like the things I feel the most bad about is I look back at like, I wrote this, I was like, it was with Palin I knew. Right. I know something is wrong with this. It smells bad. I still like John McCain. I still respect him. There are other rational. I still have my career. I still have other opportunities. It's when you're like, man, I smelled it, but I just kind of ignored the smell for various reasons. Like that's right. the part that I think is, I, I think a lot of people experience that. I think that's important to speak it out loud because it's more for like, that is a good learning for the next people. When something smells bad, it probably is bad. It really is. I mean, and I say this in the piece, part of my self-justification was Everybody was super busy at Salon. I mean, we were always overworked. The 2000 election, Florida recount, and then 9-11 turned us from a sleepy little web publication that published maybe once a day to a 24-7 publishing operation with the same number of people. So it was really, really, always really hard and really fun. It was great. But I I told myself, I'm the editor-in-chief. First of all, the buck stops with me. But also, I'm a good editor if I really use my brain, and I can do it. And I don't want to dump this on my news editor who's drowning or my features editor. Likewise, he's doing 10 things at once. That's another way, you know, in terms of if people 
are wrestling with these kinds of issues where you're just like, I just need to spare these other people yeah, right. the burden. When you really, there's a part of you that's like, if I show this to these other people, I won't mention their names, but they're just the greatest people in the world and they're so smart and they have so much integrity. If I, they were both so mortified on my behalf and also theirs because it was, you know, really a bad look for Salon. They would have found it. They would have come to me. We would have killed it. If I had simply done that and not said, I'm just protecting them. You really, your conscience, your mind, your psyche does really weird things when you're, yeah. you know, trying to justify doing the wrong thing. Did you know Bobby at all, Kennedy? You know, I had never met him. I talked to him a million times, probably literally a million. He would call me at all hours of the day and night. And he was charming. And I'm Irish Catholic, if you don't know. I worshiped the Kennedys as a child, my family, you know, my father was gone, but it would have been a really big deal for me to be like editing Bobby's son. You know, you have those right, milestones yeah. in your life that are like, they're personal sure. to you. He was charming. He was funny. He had stories. We talked about his family. And then over time he became really bullying. And then when we took the piece down, oh my God, he wrote like a 13 page, whatever rejoinder where he shared some of my editing notes and then lied about some other things, but that's par for the course we've learned. So, yeah, but I never did get to meet him or Cheryl Hines, who, you know, I love. I'm curious your view both, A, on like kind of the rationalization of his campaign now. What do you think he thinks he's getting out of it? And also, really even I'm more curious about what you think about, you know, there's the horseshoe element. Yeah. Like you must have people in your life, right? I assume since you're like of this world who are like far lefty, progressive hippie folks that have jumped on this bandwagon that's sort of Trumpy leftism. That, that RFK represents. My beloved friend David Talbot has, and he's all over Facebook with it. And I just do my best not to comment and just wish him a happy birthday or whatever. It's an interesting species, the lefty horseshoe jumper. For people who don't understand this concept, it's like the instead of a straight line, our politics is a horseshoe. And so there's the middle on one side who's like the bulwark centrist kind of middle. But then there's the other side of the horseshoe where the far right and the far left get kind of close to each other. And some people sometimes jump over, right? Because there's they're so far on the left. And I think RFK is just like the prime example of this. He wasn't a moderate Democrat. He was a very progressive Democrat who's right. kind of gotten on board. And my theory is you get, oh, all these institutions are bad. It's Occupy Wall Street. It's the government. It's, you know, the left, the conspiratorial thinking. And you can then kind of see how it's easy then to be like, oh, Big Farm is bad. Oh, the vaccines are bad. And now all of a sudden I'm a Trumpist, right? Now right. we can't trust anybody, right? right. I, don't, I don't know. But anyway, I'm, but that's an outside. What's your take on it? Obviously, I know of the theory. I don't, we need a better theory. I don't know exactly how to describe this coming together. But, you know, I also, mea culpa, I contracted with Glenn Greenwald at Salon. Another example. Of Another this. example. I do think it's definitely, you're conspiracy minded. Glenn was right about a lot of stuff. We were sure. doing some torture. RIP Diane yeah. Feinstein, you were definitely to my right, but you shone in the moment when you released that report on, on torture. We tortured. Glenn was writing about it. And I don't know. I mean, he left Salon. He took in Snowden. But I think there is an element of you're a conspiracy theorist. You're right about some things. But then you see it everywhere. I mean, I know with Glenn, and we had some fights about this, Barack Obama was a centrist to me. He really was. Sorry, folks out there, but as a Democrat, he really was a centrist. He happened to be black, so he fooled people. I'm not saying fooled people as in he did anything wrong, but 
He was a centrist. He governed to the right of where Joe Biden is today. Don't you think so? For sure. For sure. For, on economic stuff, for sure. For sure. And, and I know, think even on foreign policy, I would say. Probably on probably foreign also. policy. He yeah. got us out of Afghanistan. He warned Obama against escalating you know, the troop numbers when Obama did that. Drones he strikes. was the first one to come out for gay marriage. He forced Obama yeah. out on gay marriage. Yeah. I don't love everything about Uncle Joe, although I do love Uncle Joe. But to get back to Obama, Glenn saw similar things happening under Obama. There was still a lot of drone warfare. There wasn't, I'm not saying there was torture, but there were some sketchy things, foreign policy, other things. And I think once you see it, you can't unsee it. And there's a certain kind of integrity in saying Bush did it, but now Obama's doing a lot of the same stuff. But then I don't know, then you just go off the cliff or you, the horseshoe comes around and you just are either imagining the worst or seeing the worst or believing the worst. And that's that's where he went. We've got the same thing in terms of Russia, where, you know, obviously it's a staple of Trumpism. The Russia hoax was a hoax. Russia did nothing wrong. Putin is a great man. But there's the horseshoe theory. Then there's also the tankies on the left who support Putin. Putin did nothing wrong. People like me who believe that Russia did interfere in our elections in some fashion, Russia hoax, MSNBC, shit libs, they all went and then, you know, the war happens in Ukraine and suddenly the Ukrainians are the aggressors and NATO provoked it, the U.S. provoked that. Poor Russia had no choice but to take Crimea because NATO was aiming its weapons at Russia. I do think some of that is ideological. I know while we're doing no offense, there are always some pro-Russia leftists out there. That's not exactly a new thing. That right. was true in the 80s and has been true for a while. Now we've got more, I think, pro-Russia righties. So, you know, uh, it's a, Mona Charon, my colleagues have been saying that she's got to update useful idiots to make it about the right this time. She made it about the pro, it was about the pro-Russia lefties in the 80s. Right. But anyway, I digress now. But I think some of it is also about resentment. And that's the common line, I think, between Kennedy and Greenwald. I don't know Talbot, but the people we've been talking about is they are resentful that the, whatever you want to call it, center-left, corporate-lib, whatever pejorative or compliment you want to use, neoliberal, they, neoliberals, they yeah. resent that this crowd is at the state dinners and on television and getting the contracts and that they feel like a personal desire to want to take them down. And resentment can lead you to some bad places, right? And I think that what you're saying is right, is like, if you are correct that that group missed some things, they missed some things going along with the Iraq war, they missed some things with the Great Recession. But like, once you're convinced that those people are bad, right, and that everything that they do is bad. They're not just wrong, they're bad, right? Yeah, then that incentivizes. So I think that there's like that personal resentment, contrarianism is a big part of it. Yeah, I would agree. Although, I, you know, again, I have to say, Bobby could retire and, you know, live out his life with his dogs and his wife and his falcons and everything else. He's really, apart from losing his dad, which is terrible, Bobby's done well. Glenn's done really well. But he, Glenn got a lot of money to start the intercept, to lead the intercept. God knows what else he's got. And Glenn, you know, Glenn's doing well. There's no substitute for recognition, though, for being seen. Yeah. You know, Kennedy's, like his family, you know, they've got statues and sculptures. There's no right. sub there's no amount of money that's a substitute for that. That's you know? true. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, my last thing on, on RK, I think the conventional wisdom 
Nate Silver weirdly wrote in Barry Weiss's thing that he was, because he always has to be counter conventional wisdom now. So the key wrote yeah. the counter conventional wisdom is that Kennedy will help Biden and Kennedy would hurt Trump if he ran as a third party. Oh, right. Uh, it's a counter, counter, that, counter, counter conventional Yeah, but I thought that was the conventional wisdom. Right. That's what I think. But anyway, I'm with the view that Kennedy would hurt Trump actually and help Biden because I think because of this that we're talking about at this point to be mostly kind of MAGA types that would go for Kennedy. But maybe that's wrong. I don't know. So I'm curious what you think about that. Maybe there are enough lefty, Jill Stein, Bernie Sanders types that would vote for him that it would actually hurt Biden. Right. I'm open you know, that. I didn't support Bernie either time, but I would never put his name on that list. I just sure, I wasn't comparing. I just meant like his voters. Yeah. I just, you know, I, yeah. I'm always yeah. in trouble for That's not fair. supporting Bernie in my world. I don't know. I think it is Such a different world. I know. Our worlds. I think it's really interesting that Steve Bannon now thinks, now he's now cursing out Bobby. He encouraged Bobby to run, but he's now yes. cursing out Bobby because he thinks that Bobby, if he runs an independent campaign, will hurt Trump. I really don't know. But I think there's a decent argument to be made that he would hurt Trump, that his family is going to go all out for Joe Biden. Everybody that I know, I mean, Caroline Kennedy Schlossberg, she doesn't do a lot of interviews, but she did a really great interview. I think it was with Gail King and her upstart son. And her son had gone on TikTok and been like, Uncle Bobby, go away. You're crazy. He's the kind of Kennedy we like. Yeah, he's a he's handsome a, airhead who's doing the right thing. I, yeah, you do your thing, do Jack. Do your thing, young Jack. Caroline was just really obviously amused. Anybody like my late parents or my aunts and uncles who revere the Kennedys, who's still a Democrat, that's another conversation, they will not vote for Bobby when this gets going. Yeah. And I do think that we have some crunchy liberals. I mean, we covered it at Salon. We had anti-vax parents in Marin County who were, you know, voted for at that back at the time, Kerry or Obama, who weren't getting their kids vaxxed. It was crazy. So there right. is, yeah. there's definitely the goop Democrats. <laughs> right. They are out there. But I think the people who've just really made anti-vax stuff a political movement, not just like a lifestyle choice or... They're right. they're on the right. They're also dying. You know, it's really sad when you look at the red state COVID deaths. It's sad. But anyway, I can't tell you for sure. But my mom, I go back and forth on this one. I, I could see it either way. I was not planning on asking this, but I'm like fascinated by your opinion. The progressive media world, it was so ascendant in this time you're talking about. The glory days and the post 9-11, that area you're talking about where Salon is growing. It's like Salon and Mother Jones and Slade and, uh, and I guess New Republic's moment was maybe a little before that. Yeah. But I don't know. Like In this day and age, it feels like the right conservative media is so influential the MAGA right media, not like the National Review, right, they right. might as well, Whatever they they might as well be dead. But like the Daily Wire and that world is so influential. And it, it feels like the left media, I don't know, Brian Butler, a friend of mine who was at Crooked, who just started yeah, a new yeah. Substack, kind of made this point that he's like, he doesn't feel like when he was coming up in the 2000s, the lefty media was so vibrant and it was challenging authority. And he feels like it's stagnating a little bit. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say the lefty media like Salon. I would say the blogs. That's when Talking Points Memo, I think Brian started there. Yeah, he did. Big B. So there, there was a, I mean, the Iraq war, the late Eric Bollert, my good friend who also worked at Salon, did a lot of reporting on this, that the blogosphere really exploded around post- Florida recount post 9-11 and around the Iraq war when so much of the mainstream media, there were people at Salon, including David Talbot, by the way, 
who supported the Iraq war, who were like, we've just got to stop Saddam. They didn't believe that he had triggered or, you know, funded 9-11, but he's a baddie. You've got to get rid of him. We're just going to say then post that little clip on David Talbot's Facebook yeah. page just to like create, just to stir up a little. Confessions of a liberal Iraq war hawk, <laughs> literally. Google it. But the blogosphere exploded in anger that the liberal media and the New York Times and Judy Miller and all these people mm-hmm. really selling this thing that the late David Carr, I loved him. I actually wrote a very compassionate story about me. And it's funny because it linked me with Katrina Van Heuvel at The Nation as two sad lefties who had been left behind by history after Saddam's statue was toppled and all was well in Iraq. The invasion went, as you recall, it was a cakewalk, okay? It's not sneering because he really did like me. It's almost sneering. A profile of us and a few other people that look losers. Do you have that framed now? I do. I do. I've written about it a hundred times and David (laughs) at some point apologized. But yeah, it was lonely out there, but the blogs took off and took over. And that's what I recall. And I don't know what's going on now. We all bet on the internet and, you know, Salon and Slate were going to eat the New York Times' lunch and salon, God bless them, they're still slogging along. Slate's doing a little better, but it's a slog. Huffington Post was going to put everybody out of business. And then, I forget the order, but BuzzFeed was going to put the Huffington Post out of business and Vox was going to put BuzzFeed out of business and this and that. You know this, I told you in person. I love the bulwark. I subscribe to it. I read multiple things every day. You're never claiming that you're going to put everybody out of business. And There's just also a grappling with what we don't know, that you can say, I don't know if Bobby Kennedy is going to take votes for Trump. Yeah, sure. We're in a fractured media environment. We're a niche thing. We know it. Yeah, I don't, you know, so I I really like that humility, which we didn't have at Salon and, you know, the subsequent generations haven't had. And then I don't know what's on the left today. You know, there's the the Substack revolution. I, I don't know. I think, and it's kind of sad to say, but individual writers and TV personalities have their own kind of platform and brand, but I don't want to insult any of my peer left. I think it's kind of related to the threat from the right. And I think that Brian Butler sees this when he wrote about this. I'm interested to see what he's going to put on his Substack because he's smart. And I think that his point is like he thinks that a lot of his peers are kind of scared to challenge conventional. It's hard to create a website or a news identity that always agrees with everything that the White House does, right? Like, it's hard to challenge, you know, to to get a, like, why would anybody read you if you just are a DNC press release machine, right? I get that. But I think that there's good reason why some on the left are like, I'm hesitant to do this intra-coalition criticism like we did in the Bush years, because I'm so fucking scared of the Nazis that are about to take over, right? And it's just like, and I feel this way about Joe Biden, and I'm, I guess I'm quasi in this coalition at this point where I'm like, I just don't, I don't love nitpicking Joe Biden that much because it's like, he's so much better than the alternative, right? right? And so I think maybe there's something to that and that that's created some, a little bit more of a sclerotic environment in the lefty media. Anyway, that's my, my I, I, th- I think you're right. I think it's really, it's hard, you know, it's also, there's the woke element, which I don't really want to get into, I, I mean, I don't... Let's get into well, it. Well, then, great, Joe, for saying that to Tim, because now you're fucked. Okay. I think there is a lot of orthodoxy, and there are things that people on the left have a hard time being honest about or asking questions. There is a great deference that I think can be based on race or 
gender identity or, you know, that is earned and deserved. But then there's also a kind of timidity. I'm a big fan of people who've been left out should have more of their say and their turn right now. Okay. That said. I agree with that. And you agree with that. But there's also just things that I think lefty people get kind of tongue-tied about. Yeah, I don't want to go down the defund the police rabbit hole, but this was like an example of this, right? I think that this was clearly something that had some issues, like police reform, obviously questioning the police and racist cops, like all that's fine. But like because people were worried about that, they were afraid to be like, hey, are, are we are we overstepping a little bit here? Are there some excesses over there? And eventually that end, right? This is why I think that like the left is actually kind of more healthy than the right, because like eventually that ended, right? right. right. And by 21, 22, 23, there are plenty of people that are like, yeah, okay, we overstepped there. But in the moment, there was a little bit of timidity, it felt like, of speaking. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I defended it, but I defended not attacking it. Like I thought Kamala Harris handled it really well at one point in a debate with Meghan McCain on The View. And she was like, we're not talking about that. We're talking about reorganizing the police. And this is still true for me, Tim. People were out there literally putting their bodies on the line. And they had demands and they had language. And I did come around to disagreeing with it publicly, but I definitely had a point, and I don't really regret that point, where I was kind of like, who the fuck am I, white lady? You know, living in a nice neighborhood to be oh, I just really wish you wouldn't make that request of the nice police. I, you know, my my favorite uncle was a cop, you know. I just was kind of like, I guess I've got to take my time. I've got to take my time. I've got to listen to them. I've got to listen to my own internal reservations. I don't regret that. It's messy. Again, I do feel like liberals, progressives, whatever, are grappling with that more openly or more honestly than uh, certainly forget about MAGA. But I think it's just a tough time. And I think on Biden, it's so funny. I'm privy to many left conversations that are semi-private, so I won't mention any names. But a couple weeks ago, major panic attack about, you know, Biden's numbers and, you know, Democrats don't like him and Democrats really do like him. But anyway, they'd like somebody else to run. And, and, you know, one of the names was Gavin Newsom. That's a whole other podcast. I I really like Gavin. And I call him Gavin because I've known him. I wrote the first feature about him when he was running for mayor. And I really grew to like him. But these people are like, Gavin Newsom should run and he's going to run. He's not going to run. Not going to run against Joe Biden for sure. Gavin Newsom has some issues. A lot of them are public. But like now they're freaking out because LaFonza Butler, his appointee to the Senate, worked for Airbnb for a while after a career in the labor movement. There's just a level of bedwetting, to use a term that people do use, on the left and among liberals that is just like, you don't have any say about it. Joe Biden is running. If something happens to him, God forbid, we'll face that then. But why are you, why are you people, David Ignatius, not on the left, but why are you people sitting around coming up with reasons that Joe Biden is going to be terrible or, you know, should step aside or, you know, take your victory lap, Joe, but don't give it to Kamala because we don't like her either. It's just like, come on, people. It's yeah. no wonder anyway. sometimes sometimes my old people find the left annoying. I always say that. Left, sometimes lefties listening get mad at me. They're like, sometimes y'all can be annoying, some of this stuff. Yeah, it's just like, really? So we're going to be mad at her about Airbnb. While we're doing the, the identity stuff really quick, and I'm, I'm going to get to your new book next, but I'm just going to admit this. I did not read it. <gasps> so it was not in my, I was not in fond with Joan Walsh era, so maybe I'll go back to it now. But you wrote, what's the matter with white people? Why we long for a golden age that never was. I mean, this is kind of like this concept is 
related a little bit, right? To the, you know, I said, let's go there on the woke stuff. This is related, you know, a little bit to what that whole mindset, right? That that white people want to maintain a society that maybe worked for them in the 1950s. So anyway, what was behind the idea to write about that? It's a really good book. I stand by most of it, but not all of it. It's kind of like half memoir and half political analysis, and I don't think I ever really nailed it perfectly. But I come from a family where my dad was a Christian brother, Irish Catholic, stayed super, super liberal, especially on civil rights. And most of the rest of my family, they were classic Reagan Republicans, mm-hmm. or Reagan Democrats, but they are Republicans now, yeah, sure. um, although some of them wouldn't vote for Trump, so that's good. And I tried to understand that and be a little bit sympathetic, but also be like, Republicans, I, I'm sorry, Mitt Romney, God bless him for everything he's done, but he sought Trump's endorsement in 2012, 2011, 2012. What did Donald Trump have going for him? birtherism. That's what made him a force in the Republican Party. And Mitt Romney lowered himself. And I think he knew what he was doing. He never looked happy doing it. Some people were really overtly appealing to whiteness and being overtly racist. And then he and Paul Ryan claimed that Obama cut Medicare to give it to those people on Obamacare who had the Obama phones. Didn't happen. You know what I'm saying? There was coded racism even, you know, you look back fondly at Mitt Romney. I kind of do. So I'm in the 2012 campaign. I didn't work for Romney in the primary, so I was kind of on the outside of the circle, right? So I'm not in like the what ad should we do conversations, no spin it once they've decided part of the team. Right, right, right. And so they put out these welfare to work ads. Yeah. They come through the process, you know, where we're deciding who we, you know, how do we do the press rollout? And I just remember being like, why are we doing this? What is this? And, and you know, they're like, oh, this polls well. I'm like, oh, well, that's why. I wonder why it polls well. Like, yeah, right. Or talking to like that. We're talking eventually to the Obama Trump voter. That's who that right. ad was for. Well, and like, Stuart is Stevens really is a good friend of mine. And I'll tell you this now. Like, it's just like, that's what they were doing. And it speaks directly to this kind of white angst stuff. It just right. it wasn't as overt as Trump. But like, that was the point. Right. That's what I loved about Stuart's book. Like, Stuart just really owns it all. Yeah. He really does. And Stuart and I clashed back in the day, as you and I did. And he's from Mississippi. He finally sat down and was like, yeah, that's what we were doing. We didn't mean to. It's kind of like me and RFK Jr. I didn't mean to. I didn't want, I just didn't want those other people to have to work too hard. (laughs) We tell ourselves stories. And then at some point, you can't tell yourself that story anymore. And Stuart is somebody who really owned it. And some other people have too. And you have. Some people, you know, need to go a little further for my taste. But (laughs) I mean, Trump is in my book. It came out in 2012. Trump is in my book. I didn't know he was going to run, but it's like that was such a clear dividing line for me. Birtherism was such a clear dividing line Mm. for me. Fox News was, you know, running a 50-state strategy. Megyn Kelly was blaming Obama's election on the new Black Panther Party. Seven disabled black guys in Philadelphia who allegedly, if they scared anybody, they scared black people at the polling places. They weren't going to, you know, Bucks County (laughs) to suppress the white vote. I mean, come on, people. It just got so obvious in those years. So that's a lot what it's about. I also thought that if Democrats made more of a case to the white working class, they would get more white working class voters. I did not count on Donald Trump running and making such a racially explicit appeal. Obama did great things for white workers, white auto workers. Obamacare helped, maybe not proportionately, but millions more white people than black people because there are a lot more of us. And Joe Biden has done more things for the white working class. I mean, Joe Biden 
is in trouble for directing money to red states and to part of the auto worker tension is that giving money to build these plants in red states. He's very consciously trying to help red states and some blue states and union workers are really pissed about it. But it's not working. The, the materialist, you know, those materialists are like, drop the identity politics and just go straight working class, white working class. Here's your Biden phone. I don't know what you're supposed to get. Here's your Trump phone. No, it didn't work. It's not working. I don't know what will work. But that I think I was way too optimistic about. Just get back to, you know, bread and butter, kitchen table. Bread and butter. Um, okay, uh, corporate bullshit. Tell us about it, and then and then we're gonna spar a little bit. Oh no! Okay, just a little. I know it is. It's it's an easy page through. They they sent it to me last night, and I was like, I'm not gonna have time to read this. Got up this morning, and I was like, Oh yeah. I was like, oh, You know, it's very. It's an easy. The Ryan Holiday, who I've interviewed for this, he's like, Your next book, you should try to write a perennial seller. And I was like, What's that? He's like, It's a book that like, it will still be relevant in 2052. And I'm like, I don't I don't know how to write a book like that. This is kind of like that, like conceivably, it, it, right? Because it. it goes. It talks about the corporate bullshit that's been going on since the 1920s, right? Whenever you started it. Right. I mean, even, it, you know, we go back to slavery and, and everything old is new again, you know, because defenders of slavery, yeah, they were racist as fuck, but they often couched their defense as in, we've done so much for the Negro race. They were just a depraved, demented people who we brought over and we, you know, we gave them good jobs and religion and we, we protect their women. So the DeSantis curriculum. Yeah, it was, you know, they, yeah. they wrote it. John Calhoun, former vice president, racist, secessionist of South Carolina. Yeah, he's in there. The DeSantis stuff came out after we finished the book. But yeah, it's all there. I mean, basically, it's a handbook of like the way that corporate America and its defenders, you know, going back to the South, it's complicated more complicated in terms of the Civil War, but the defenders of the status quo always have these kind of high-minded reasons for why you, the reformer, you, the people, are just wrong about it. One thing I liked about the project, there was this unbelievable data bank of quotes, and I didn't compile them. I found a handful, but they needed to be organized. And what we decided to do was organize them, not in terms of, okay, here's a chapter on global warming, here's civil rights, here's slavery, but rather around the common arguments that they trot out to defend everything. So obviously they deny things are a problem. Then they say, okay, maybe it's a problem, but it's your problem. It's your fault. Workers are the major cause of worker mishaps on the job. They don't want to wear their helmets or they don't wear the right boots or men who drink are more susceptible to chemical poisoning. I don't know if you knew that, but the guys who don't drink, they're fine. The drinkers are killing themselves. Everything's a job killer. Everything's going to kill more jobs and and hurt the people. The minimum wage really, I don't know if you know this, really hurts black people. Kills jobs. Well, it kills jobs for sure, but it, it really Especially black, black people, people's jobs. Because for whatever reason, people would hire them for below the minimum wage, but they don't say they're not worth the minimum wage. Just like we all we all just kind of know what we're talking about. It'll hurt young people and black people. There's always this high-minded social reason for why we can't solve these problems. And then there are just like out-and-out lies, like the way, and we do have a little case study about the way the oil and gas industry absolutely knew about climate change, knew why, had made some attempts at amelioration and reform, and maybe we should do something about this, guys. And then we're like, 
holy shit, no, we're not. And just went into complete denial, which has now been written, you know, there are books about it. And so it's really kind of remarkable how often they recycle these same defenses for different reasons. And we felt like it's kind of like a handbook of fighting back and understanding that they're almost always wrong. Maybe not well, always. It made me but... feel a little bad, I will say, going through oh, it this, because of my dalliances in corporate PR in between campaigns. And uh, I have guilt about it. And uh, I looked back and, and also a little bit of humiliation and shame because like I'm reading some of these. And I'm like, yeah, we basically did this for various clients. And I, I love the old, old examples because they bring <laughs> into stark relief the newer parallels like um our emaciated child workers could kick your anybody's ass like your coddled asses of the kids who are not child laborers yeah where they're real tough uh the one i liked meat is just as good with age <laughs> like whiskey like an old um, i liked that um lead helps to guard your health that was the national lead company that said that so anyway it made me reflect on some of my clients in a negative way and i do think that it is useful in that as like a playbook for understanding just these tools and just how si they look a lot sillier like newer examples of this right like the facebook stuff and like all of that like right. it feels a little bit more defensible but when compared to like the lead council's arguments all of a sudden you're like wait a minute actually in a hundred years we're gonna look at this and it's gonna look like the lead council's arguments right and it's just like you got to separate yourself facebook had no evidence that its algorithms and its practices were contributing to the horrible self-regard of teenage girls, you did. And, you know, the Sacklers saying the problem isn't our product and the fact that we're getting doctors to overprescribe, it's the addicts. Make the addict the enemy. Right. And they did that. They actually succeeded, even though they've had to pay oh, a lot wow. of money. You know, really sick people with pain, chronic pain can't get pain meds today in a lot of cases because we've criminalized that and made them seem like addicts. That's another, we can have a whole other conversation. Um. Okay, okay. so, so here, here are the ones that I didn't feel guilty about. My old Republican, you know, muscle started to flex. Okay, so, so let's, right. I just want to do it. A couple of the things in your playbook, one is free market does, knows best, and the other is you'll only make it worse. These are like two themes that corporations and their defenders use to fight against various regulations. I just got to say, okay, the, the, I'm, I hear you on that, but the U.S. economy is doing way better than the European economy for a reason, right? I think there are definitely some regulations, the over-regulations that are happening in some of these other social democracies that are preventing growth, that are hurting middle-class incomes. Our median income is pretty darn good compared to Europe. Right. And you only make it worse argument is true sometimes. I mean, in your beloved California, CEQA, you know, these environmental review laws that were well-intentioned and whatever, regulations, like they did have unintended consequences in certain cases. And there is a reason why you can't fucking build anything in California and why it's really expensive and why people are moving. So don't the free marketeers have some points here? You know, occasionally they do have points and probably in the case of CEQA, I mean, you know, they do. I used to be more of a NIMBY and now I'm like, build everywhere, YIMBY, you know. All right. Welcome aboard. Right. Okay. But on the other hand, look, part of why we're doing better is that we poured a shit ton of money into the pandemic relief and really helped a lot of people. That's one reason. 
we've just invested a lot in the economy. So I think that's an argument for the free market doesn't always know best. And we also have a whole chapter on calling things socialist. And now Marjorie Taylor Greene, even Mitch, Mitch McConnell calls Joe Biden a socialist. And Joe Biden's got the best answer. He's like, I'm not a socialist. I beat the socialist. I kicked Bernie Sanders' ass. <laughs> I'm not a socialist. But they deride these things as socialism when a lot of us, I guess myself included, I probably once thought I was a socialist, but I don't, I'm not anymore. I'm a social democrat. Very heavily regulated capitalism is the answer. Okay. And I was just in Scandinavia for the first time. Can we and meet I, in the middle on medium regulated capitalism? No, we need very heavily. <sighs> About medium to medium high. Reasonably <laughs> regulated capitalism, which we <laughs> totally would disagree about. But. Anyway, you're in Scandinavia. I know this was going to be my next question. So you want us to become Norway. I really That's do. where you're going with this? Yeah, I know there are problems, but I just have to say this. I was with my sister and brother-in-law. They took me as a gift for my 80th birthday. I like to say I'm 80 now because people say you look really good. Um, it was my Medicare birthday. Yeah. You, do look, you do look great. <laughs> anyway. We were running to these people who were, you know, like waiters, people at like the fancy hotels where we were staying. And they'd be like, oh, you know, we love the U.S. and we're so overtaxed and da, 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 da. And then they'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm taking off three months for paternity leave. Or, you know, it's just been so great because we have free childcare and blah, blah, blah. So in the span of a conversation, they go from being like, we hate taxes and we love lean and mean U.S. And then we love our quality of life. I mean, basically, like, it's really pretty sweet over here. We would just like to have another car. They don't even have dishwashers. Like, you know, I mean, they don't? I, I, don't I don't think know. so. I don't think they even have dryers. No, I think they're still hang drying in Norway. Come on. No, I'm pretty sure here. that's right. We can, no. we can Google it. We have more dryers here. I can promise you that. We also have more people, friend. <laughs> For meaty, per family, per household, we have more dollars. Right. Anyway, I hear, okay, yeah, yeah, that's fine. I get it. Hopefully, we could live in a world again where we can decide whether or not, you know, we want to live in Norway or whether we want to live in Colorado. Like, I think Colorado with Jared Polis is doing very well within the American system, some regulation. I don't think we got to go all the way to Norway, but. That's okay. That would be that'd be a reasonable debate for us to be able to have. Unfortunately, it's like Nazism or a a game show host and probably not Nazism, but a game show host autocracy versus. Okay, hold on. What's the nonsense? We have dishwashers. Okay, Sebastian is telling me that the internet says that Norway has dishwashers. So I maybe you. Not and right I, I was, all, you know, I didn't see clothing out on the clotheslines, Tim. They've got dryers too. Thanks, I'm not Sebastian. Sure. Okay, we'll we'll go to that. We'll go to the Google on that. All right. That's it. We're going to rapid fire really fast. First rapid fire question. You said you changed your mind on NIMBY to YIMBY. Is there anything else you've changed your mind on as you've been reading the bulwark and seeing the light of your socialist past? Any any other <laughs> any other issues you want to reflect on? What I really enjoy about the bulwark is that you guys are still really grappling with what you believe. You're just really not sure. You want everybody to have a dryer. I get that, Tim. But other than that, and so do I. I, you know, yeah. I, I lived for six weeks in an apartment without a dishwasher. Yeah. Never again. It sucks. I want to be more ready to grapple with things I'm not sure about than I feel like I have been. And it, again, that feels like a luxury of not being on the brink of fascism. But I'd like to put it in my back, you know, back in my portfolio, even while we're on the brink of fascism. Because if we slip over to fascism. I'm not really going to have any choices or a dishwasher. So, you know, I better YOLO, rethink your priors while you can. I'm rethinking many of my priors. I hear that. Okay. Well, we have a politician who most disappointed you. I should have this one. Uh, I have very low standards. 
you know? I mean... <laughs> That's a great answer, actually. I have low standards. I forgive and forget. I mean, like we said, this whole thing about Lafonza Butler. How about Andrew Cuomo? How about your governor, Andrew Cuomo? Did he not disappoint you a little bit? Oh, great. Oh, my God. I was never a Cuomo... Thank you. You saved me. I was never a Cuomo sexual. And, he, you know, he's too conservative for me, and he's an opportunist and a freaking asshole. But... Did I watch those daily COVID briefings for a while on my sofa under my blankie with a cup of tea being like, I don't want to die? Yes, I did. Did I laugh at his jokes and the boyfriend and all that? Yeah, yeah I did. I, yes, I, I had higher hopes for a minute, but I always knew he was an asshole. Were you a John Edwards or an Obama person in Elliot or Hillary? Were you Hillary? Oh my God. I was a John Edwards person, but I don't even remember that. But you know, John Edwards was the dodge. Okay. So I've given you both your answers yeah. then. No, you're, you haven't been disappointed by John? No, I was very disappointed, but I never really cared. That <laughs> he was a way for a lot of people to get out of the Hillary versus Obama Got nightmare. Yeah. And then I went to Hillary, so that's a whole other thing. And I have no regrets. Love her. You shouldn't. Okay, final question. You wrote another book we haven't mentioned yet. It was with the father of my friend, Will Nevius. Oh, my God. I you know this. And you're, this book is called Splash Hit. <laughs> I've not. I've also not read it. It's about baseball, apparently. Yeah. I don't watch baseball. So my final rapid-fire question is, tell me something about the San Francisco Giants or about my friend Will Nevius's father that I can use to embarrass him. Either one of those will be acceptable. Chuck Nevius is just a great person, so I just I, know, I, I can't do that. I love the San Francisco Giants. I shared season tickets. I got season tickets to that. That ballpark was built in 2000, and I, at the last minute, was asked. They had a photo book, and Chuck had written some introductions based on the building of the stadium, which was actually very interesting. And it was privately funded. We didn't have to do corporate welfare. Hmm. And then like at some point someone realized the stadium is built. The team actually went to the postseason that year. We really should have somebody come in and write about the actual stadium and the experience of it. And they hired me. And I can't remember how little I worked for, but it was little. But I got <laughs> an all access pass. My daughter and I had tickets for the rest of the season for the postseason. We got to go in the dugout. I love Barry Bonds because he was nice to me and my daughter fight me. I don't care. I have other reasons for loving Barry Bonds, but it was really one of the greatest experiences of my life. And, this uh, is a great job. This is great. So if you are listening, Scott Woodward, athletic director of LSU, or Josh Kroenke, president of the Denver Nuggets, or any of my other teams, I will take this job. I will do it. I will do right? a very light work, very soft, no hard questions, easy peasy book about your team and your stadium in exchange for photos. full... Full passes. I want full Doug out, but yeah, I need full all access pass, and I will do the Joan Walsh for you. I got into the locker room. I would always ask permission. Is everybody decent? I was not. I did, wasn't doing a job where I required to go in there, but I did get to see people stretching and stuff. What the other thing? The other no, job I would like. No promise that I'll ask about the decency, but I, everything else you've said. You I don't have to. Time. I did, yeah. but I'd like to be in charge of stretching before the games because when you watch those guys get their hammies stretched. There's a beauty to it. That's all I'm going to say. Also, Dusty Baker is my lifelong hero. Okay. So. We're going to end on the hammy stretching porn. Um, Joan <laughs> Walsh, this has been so delightful. I have to tell you, among the things that I look back on with regret, which is a lengthy list as we've been discussing, I don't know that I would have given Joan Walsh a chance in 2007. And it was a me problem, not a you problem. Just I bought into the bullshit. And I was just totally wrong. You are delightful. And the people that I was working with are actually terrible. <laughs> and it was them I shouldn't have been giving a chance. <laughs> so anyway, thank you so much for the time. And we can fight more about 
the mean income in Norway versus Colorado at a later date once the fascism threat has passed. I look forward to it. Thanks, Tim. Thanks so much, Joan. Go get corporate bullshit. We'll see you back here on Wednesday with JVL and Sarah for the next level podcast. Joan Walsh will be listening. Peace.